We live in a world that is overflowing with all kinds of messages all the time. And, and there are some of those phrases that resonate with people and just, <clears throat> just stick. They're simple. They're, they're punchy. Uh, they, they're designed to trigger emotion or thought or action. And you know some of these. Uh, they melt in your mouth, not in your hands, M&Ms, right? For some things that money can't buy, for everything else, there's MasterCard, right? <laughs> Bounty is the quicker. Yeah, you got that one, right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, right? The last two presidential cycles have had phrases like that. President Obama, change we can believe in. Or President Trump, make America great again. And, and just saying those phrases, any of them that we have, they, they connect you to the essence of a product or a group or a, a movement or an experience. They bring the story into you. They bring you into the, the story. Now you, you have more of those phrases than you think. Probably we deal with them all the time. Athletic teams have rallying cries, and businesses have phrases to pump up productivity and, and exercise plan, and turn fat into fit, no pain, no gain. And, and even your family, maybe you, have, maybe you have movie lines that your family quotes to each other from time to time. Maybe there's something that happened one time that was, that was so crazy, and you, you all laughed until you cried, and now when you're together, you're going to say one word that takes you right back to that time, and you're there again. And that phrase brings you into the story and brings the story into you. Now suppose, just suppose, that I were to ask you to choose some phrase to describe the experience of becoming and being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. What would you say? Ten words or less. Could be a Bible verse. Could be a statement from the person who led you to Christ or who discipled you. Could be a song or a hymn lyric. Doesn't require theological training. Doesn't even especially require that you can have your act together. Just say we're having a conversation over a cup of coffee at Spencer's. What would you say? Simple, punchy description of the essence of the Christian experience. I think it's important that we have that because our faith intersects with the world that has so many complexities in it. We deal with our, our relationships and family issues. We deal with a job or finances. We deal with concerns for a certain person or concerns for our nation, our society. And so I think it's crucial to have some simple reminder that draws it all back together and says, this is what we're about, something that will just in an instant bring you into the story and the story into you. We've been walking through Paul's little letter to the Colossians. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Colossians 1. <clears throat> He's writing to these, these young believers who are being confused by the essence of the message of Christianity. They're being confused by some false teachers. And the false teachers had given them a kind of an equation to think about. Okay, it's great to have Jesus, but you need to add these dreams and then add this, this mixture of a little bit of Jewish mystical teaching. And if you add all that together, then you'll sort of get the fullness of all God really wants for you. And when Paul writes his letter, you can almost hear the pathos in his voice. And he's saying, no, that's not it. No, the equations were like this. It's Jesus plus nothing else at all gets you everything that God wants. That he is sufficient for all things. Christ is not an ingredient to be mixed into the recipe of your best life now. He's the, he's the appetizer. He's the main course. He's the dessert. He's your after dinner coffee. He's the whole thing. 
Tim Keller says Christ is not the ABCs of the Christian faith. He's the A to Z of the Christian faith. You can't spell a word, a paragraph of, of faith apart from him in that way. So Paul's writing. He says Christ is supreme and he's above and overall. That he created everything and he sustains everything and he, he's reconciling everything. He's going to restore everything for every life. And he, he takes all that and he funnels it down to this one, one key verse, one key sentence. So I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. Hattie is going to come and she's going to read for us Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. So let's hear together the word of the Lord. Go ahead and stand. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right. Now, I asked, I asked Ms. Hattie if she would help us. We're going to all do this with her now. And so uh, we're going to read that again. But this time you're going to read with Hattie as she reads it. She's going to read it again. And let's all read it together with her, okay? To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Miss Hattie. Appreciate it. Thank you. You can be seated. Did you hear the key phrase? It's just seven words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's simple. It's punchy. Paul says all saints know this. To them, he said, we're the them. You got to get, go back to verse 26 to get that. He's talking about not superstars of faith, but anybody in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and set apart as God's special people. He said God chose to make it known. We saw last week that this mystery of, of life in Christ had been kept for centuries. People had little pieces of it, but now in Christ, they've seen everything that is there. It's a part of his, his rescue plan to draw people to himself as an act of mercy. But then he says it's not just for churchy people. He made known among the Gentiles now, that often refers to non-Jewish people, but more generally to outsiders to faith in Christ. To people of other religions or other faiths, all of us at one time before we trusted Christ or in our day, it could refer to those who are among the third largest religious group in these United States now. The 23% of our United States population now say they have no identifiable faith. That's their life, the way they think. So it was for those people that this came out. See, Christianity was never meant to be an exclusive club with a password and code language and secret handshakes and stuff. This gospel announcement was the, was the wonderful, open-armed welcome of God to all people. So Christ in you, the hope of glory, is a, is a summary of the gospel. It sums up all things about the becoming and being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. So what we want to do this morning is we want to take that little phrase and just like a diamond, we want to kind of turn it and see how the facets begin to reflect to us. And so first I want you to see this, that Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the disciples' identity. It is the disciples' identity. One of the most basic and profound questions you can ask anybody is, who are you? Remember, that was our first question about a worldview, right? Who are we? Where did we, we come from? Identity is a strong sense of, 
of self. And that's always rooted in something, and it begins to shape everything. Now, in Eastern cultures, like uh, the one in which the Bible was written, identity is often connected to your family. It's connected to your heritage, your legacy. Your identity is closely tied to that. In Western cultures, like the one we live in, we do talk about, about family of origin some, but usually that's about how it affects us as individuals. It's very individualized. So we tend to talk about identity in terms of what we can, what we do or what we can produce or what we can control. We talk about it in terms of our job or our skills or our, our influence or our, even our looks are part of our identity. Everybody has an identity. But everybody also has a spiritual identity. The question here is, who are you in God? Who are you with God at the, at the soul level? And the answer to that also has to do with your family of origin, our family of origin as, well, as human beings. So you've got to go all the way back to the very beginning to our first parents, to Adam and Eve, who were created in the image of God. Now, that means lots of things. But at the very least, it means that they're created to, to love and trust and follow God and with their life to show a family resemblance to God. Well, what is that family resemblance? Well, when the Bible describes the, what, what God is like, it uses one word. It uses the word glory. The glory is the sum of all of God's character. Pulls it all together. God, that God is holy and God is good and beautiful and true and wise and enough. And all those things together make his glory. And so when human beings are created and made, we're designed to show that. To show that glory in who we are and how we live our lives. So Adam and Eve are created that way. And they're in paradise. Every need for them is provided. And they have complete run of the place. They, they, have, they have complete freedom to do whatever they, they want, go wherever they want to do with one boundary established by God, right? One tree said, so just stay away from that. And then God's enemy came as a serpent, and he began to whisper to them, look at that fruit. Isn't that beautiful? And you would believe, you, if I told you, it's, it tastes even better than it looks. I can't believe that God would keep that from you. And Adam and Eve reached over and plucked the fruit, and took of it, and everything changed. Everything was broken in that moment. Now understand, the problem wasn't the fruit. It was the relationship of trust with God that the tree and its fruit represented. And so when they broke past that, that broke that. So now they can no longer be with God. They can no longer call that place called Eden home. They are banished from Eden. They can't be at home with God anymore. There are angels with flaming swords at the gates of, of Eden to keep them out. And so remember our second worldview question was, what's gone wrong with the world? That right there. <laughs> they were separated from the very source of life where it is and how it pulls us together. And that attitude of saying, I don't really trust that what God's done, even when he says no is best for me, I want to create my own boundaries, that idea got into our human bloodstream, into our very DNA. And so the scripture says that, that sin came into the world and, and death came through sin in that way. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. So, in other words, every single one of us are exactly like Adam and Eve. 
If we have been there in that moment, we have made the exact same choice. And since then, we have all inevitably made the exact same choice that we really don't trust God. We want to go our own way. And so Romans 3 says this. It says that all have sinned, and catch this, fall short of the glory of God. Remember what we said glory was? Glory was that we're designed to display the fullness of the character of God. So what this says is that none of us has turned out the way God intended. That none of us have lived the life to display who we're supposed to be as human beings, display who God is. We're spiritually dead rebels. So this is my core identity. Left to myself, I am a sinner. And so are you. And so is every human being on the planet. As a matter of fact, if we were one really, really big 12-step group, the first thing we could do this morning is turn to one another, introduce ourselves. Hi, my name is David, and I am a sinner. You said you put your name in there, not my name. Okay. We all begin to do this. Say, That's who I am. It's my identity, and that shapes everything. It's hardwired in. Now, how can we possibly change something that's lodged so deeply in our soul. So this is the glory of salvation. Third world view question. Who is going to fix it? Who's going to fix it? Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. The lost are those who are not where they're supposed to be. Where are we supposed to be? At home with our heavenly Father in relationship with him, displaying his glory. But if we're lost, we're not there. We're banished sinners. We're outsiders and separate from him. That's who Jesus came from. And when he came, what he did was he died on a cross, taking the penalty for that sin so that sinners could be forgiven of their rebellion. And he rose again so they could have life in him. And he invites us to trust him, that he's the only way to have a relationship with God. He said, nobody comes to the Father unless they come through me. But, but we don't want to do that. We can't do that. We love our own way so much and we just want to do that, so he has to perform a miracle. And that is he removes our hard, stony heart and puts in us a new heart that's tender for him. He makes us brand new at the core of our being. And when we have a new soft heart toward him, then we sense and we feel our sin. And we want to repent and grieve and turn away from our sin. And we want to run and trust Christ. And in that moment, out of our new self, when we do that, watch what Jesus says happens. He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. In salvation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, takes up residence inside of you. He is at home in your heart and your soul and enables you to be at home in relationship with your creator. And that changes everything about our identity. Watch this. Our old identity is that we were sinners who fall short of the glory of God. But because of Jesus, our new identity is that we are saints who now have Christ in us who's the hope of our glory. So the one thing he does is this. The only hope we have to be in a relationship with God, 
to live our created purpose is to have Christ himself, the Son of God, in us. So when we say, Christ in you, the hope of glory, this is the basis of what it means to be a Christian. It's the way you begin life as a disciple. It's the way you come home to a relationship with your creator. So my question this morning is, have you? Have you come home to your relationship with the one who made you? If you're honest, what's your identity this morning? Is your identity one who's a sinner who's still outside or as a saint who's been changed because Christ has taken up residence in you? It's crucial. This is where the whole life begins. When Christ is in you, you see, it brings you into the story, brings the story into you. But this idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is, is never just the beginning of the Christian life. It can't be that. Because if the creator and the king and the savior and the center of everything, he's not just near you, he's not just with you, he's in you now. And so if he's in you, that changes everything about your present life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, hope is a confident expectation of good from God. So on the basis of this, if Christ is in you, what can you expect from God? What's he say? You can expect glory. You can ex expect all the fullness that all God is. Paul described that. He said, the riches of this glory. It's described in another place, Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Not some spiritual blessings, a few good ones, but every single spiritual blessing we can imagine comes to us in Christ. Jesus told a couple of parables about this, real short little ones. He said, he said here's, here's the way it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, he says, the kingdom of heaven it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, in finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Now, you know what Jesus said to his disciples one day? He said, you're my little children. Here's what I want you to know. The Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. <laughs> He's given you the kingdom. He's given you all that he has. Christ, you see, is the treasure. Christ is the pearl. So we say Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a reminder of the disciples' treasure. It's our treasure. Now hang with me because I want you to see the, the expanse of this and the, and the wonder of this. Because what he's saying is that all Christ is, is in you if you have him in relationship. All Christ has, you have. Let's consider what that means. If Christ is in you, you have his his life. Remember his claims that I am the life. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the source of your life. In John 10, he says, I, I have come, you might have life and have it abundantly, overwhelmingly, overflowing, more and better life than you ever dreamed life could be. Remember, this is the one who lived the perfect human life the way it was meant to be lived by God in the beginning. It's an eternal life, not just long, but having the quality of heaven about it. It's a sufficient life to provide every single need that we have. That life is in you. Not only that, if Christ is in you, you have his death. His death that paid the full penalty for every sin. 
past, present as you're wrestling with your flesh, and future. And when we see that, here's what the Scripture says, if he's in you, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christ who is in you took all of sin's penalty, every bit of it, all of its guilt, all of its shame, all of its accusation. So when the sins that have been there before come knocking at your soul's door with guilt or shame or accusation or you don't have stuff together and that's not what a real Christian is and that's not the way you should be because you did this once upon a time, you know what happens when that sin comes knocking on your door, there's a Savior with blood-stained, nail-pierced hands who comes to the door and says, no, 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 that sin's forgiven. You don't have any access here. You can't come here. That's what forgiveness is, you see. And that's in you. Christ in you, you have his life, you have his death, you have his resurrection. We'll celebrate that in a couple of weeks. The triumph over death and Satan and hell. The, 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 the very, for three days he was dead, and the third day he rose from the dead. And the scripture says this if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You. In other words, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you. And understand what's going on there. When Jesus was dead, he was more dead than anybody's ever been dead. That this resurrection had to be strong enough to overcome the combined consequences of death and brokenness and mess for all of history and every life and every bit of time. And he rose triumphant and victorious and alive over that. And he says, you have that resurrection power in you. How's that work? That means the resurrection power, you have the resurrection power to overcome temptation. When Satan comes and makes you an offer and says, oh, look at this. This is better for you than just trusting Christ. You have resurrection power to say no to his offer. You have resurrection power to say no to picking up that drink or that bottle or taking those pills to try to get to sleep one more night. You have resurrection power to stop clicking on that porn site after your spouse has gone to bed and you think you're by yourself. You have resurrection power in you to stop going to the store and buying one more thing to medicate yourself to make you feel better by buying stuff. You have resurrection power to overcome all of that. You have resurrection power in you to do life. There's some of you who have, who have young children and, and they're running, you just ragged. You don't sleep. You don't know what to do or where to go or how to handle or what am I going to do. And maybe they're going a little older and kind of developing their own personality. You don't know what wisdom to go. You have resurrection power to raise your children. You have resurrection power in your marriage to stay in there and fight when you don't feel love anymore like you did when it started and not run away. You have resurrection power to have self-control over your tongue or over your anger. You have resurrection power when you're grieving and you're hurt and you just can't see a way to take another step forward and the darkness is there. There's resurrection power to live the mission he's called you to. To have a gospel conversation with that person that you know who doesn't know Jesus. You have resurrection power to issue an invitation to Easter services at Living Hope. You have resurrection power that comes to take a stand in a world that is increasingly dark and awful. You can stand with the light of the kingdom. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You have resurrection power in you. You have his life. You have his death. You have his resurrection. 
you have his joy. Many live the souls scrambled by, uh, by, by uh, sorry, you have rest. We'll get to joy in a minute. You have rest, right? Your souls are scrambled by business and stress, and you're trying desperately to do more and do better so everybody will think you're something and you got your act together and that maybe God will like you in the middle of that, and the Christ who is in you pleads with you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. He'll come and help you. He'll bring you his joy. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But before that, he said to his disciples on that night, he said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. His joy this sense when shadows come and despair creeps in and fear stalks you and burdens are there, this settled delight that God is for you, that God is with you, it's stronger. The joy of the Lord is your strength because he's, he's in you. When Christ is in you, you have his sustaining. It says in Colossians 1.17, in him, in Christ, all things hold together, and that includes you when you feel like you're falling apart. <laughs> and Christ is in you, you have his security. The scripture says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love is deep in you at soul level. It's underneath you as your foundation. It's around you as your protection. It's through you. It's behind you. It's before you. This love. And you got to understand, brothers and sisters, this is just a sample of what you have in Christ. Not the whole thing. It's just a sample. Now, I'm going to say to you what I said to the 930 crowd. This is one of those moments that I wish to goodness we were Pentecostals because I'm telling you, this is shouting ground right here. This is good stuff. This is the reality of who Christ is in us. Every promise God made to you in Christ is yes. This is just a little bit that we've seen. In the movie National Treasure, the Gates family has been looking for a hidden treasure of antiquities and worth millions and billions of dollars. Been looking at it for centuries. They were considered crazy conspiracy theorists, but finally they find this hidden cavern and they step in and begin to see a little of what's there. Watch what happens next. See, see, whatever we've already seen of the beauty of Christ and the treasure that we have is just a little bit. There's more than you can ever imagine that is there for you and available for you. He's given that and said, you're rich. You're richer than all the treasures that the world could ever combine. And you're rich in your soul in Christ. He says, I've given you riches and wealth. It's one thing to have the treasure, another thing to experience it. So that's why we say to you, read the Bible and pray and get in community so other people can see and help you understand. Because every time you do that, you get a little more light and you see a little more of the beauties of Christ and what he has given that brings you into the story. and gets the story into you. This hope is our identity. It's our treasure for living. But hope always leans forward on tiptoe. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not as our past or our present. It's also our future. It's the disciples' destiny. It's where we're headed. When Jesus was with his disciples on the last night before his crucifixion, he told them he would prepare a place 
for them, this wonderful place called heaven, indescribable beauty and no more tears or pain or fear or heartache or trouble or grief or separation. But then he prayed, and here's what he prayed. He prayed, I, I'm in them. And Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am that they will see my glory. There's that word again. Which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. The hope of glory is the hope not only for a place, but that we're going to be with this person. And we sang it a moment ago, didn't we? That we're going to see him face to face. And we're going to have an unfiltered view of the perfections and the beauty of Christ. And in that moment, we're going to have an undiluted sense in our heart of his joy and his love and his grace and his mercy. Our hearts are going to explode, and we're going to have an unclouded understanding of how all the pieces of God's plan for us have fit together. The things we know, the things we see, the things we don't understand, the things that are confusing to us, the things that are hard and hurtful, and the prayers that God said no to, all of those things will make sense. And when we see, oh, that's where we're going. That's the hope of the glory that we're headed to. That makes right now all the different. So Paul in Romans 8 says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. That's the hope we have. And if that's true, listen, no matter how long this present moment lasts, the moment you're in, it's not forever. No matter how messy and hurtful this moment is, it will be turned to beauty and swallowed up into his glory and his beauty. And no matter how weighty this moment feels to you, it's never on me or you to work up hope to try to find answers to make sense of it all, to just determine to punch through and work harder and harder. The hope is the Christ who is in us now, that he will carry us through. He'll get us home because he never, ever fails. That's our future, where that's headed. So you see, you see why I would say we're talking over coffee at Spencer's. And I think Christ in you, the hope of glory, defines the whole Christian experience of a disciple. It's simple. It's punchy. It gives the essence of everything when you look at it. So can I ask you this morning? Is Christ in you, the hope of glory, what you're depending on to be right with God? Have you come home to your creator? Is he at home in you? Maybe today's your day in a moment to come here and kneel and say, oh, Jesus, I need you to bring me home again so I can live who you created me to be. I wonder, is Christ in you the hope of glory, the treasure you're drawing from to live your life as a disciple of Jesus? Or are you just trying to do better and trying to be moral and trying to figure it out and trying to do more and do better? Maybe you just want to come here and kneel and say, Lord, I've been trying to draw from an account that's running out of funds fast. I need your treasure, your strength, your life, your resurrection, your joy, your rest, and all the rest of it to live the life you've called me to. Is Christ in you the hope of glory? What you're clinging to to pull you past the muck of this present moment and on to a forever with him? Is that what you're holding on to? Is that, is that your confidence? Christ in you, 
The hope of glory is our only hope. It brings you into the story of Christ and brings that story into you. And I'm just telling you, it's the only way to live. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, again, we find ourselves stunned by the expansiveness of your gospel. Oh, what you have provided for us. It's the hope for our identity. It's the hope for our right now. It's the hope for our forever. So in these moments, Lord, would you help us to be honest with ourselves, honest before you, and help us, Lord, maybe just to come and kneel and just open ourselves up and say, Lord, all you are is all I need and it's all I want. So help us, Lord, to respond obediently to your promptings in this moment as we come to the altar and as we pray. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as we worship together.